1: you return that I might live In my Father's house.
2: God sees you. God hears you. Are you aware of these facts? God sees you right now in whatever state you happen to be in, no matter what you're dealing with. And He hears your cries. I'd encourage you, in fact, in your distress, cry out to God. He knows where you are. He knows where you've come from. He knows where you're going. He knows what you need. He knows what you don't need. And he wants to do great things in your life.
0: It never feels good to be talking to someone and you realize they have their earbuds in and don't have a clue what you said. What about if you were pouring out your heart to someone, but they couldn't see the tears that were streaming down your face? You'd feel a bit hollow or empty about wanting to go there with a person who can't see your hurt or can't hear your pain. What Pastor Mike teaches on today is that God isn't either of these. He's not blind to your hurt, and He isn't deaf to your pain. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 16 as he continues his message God sees
1: what you said.
2: On this occasion, the temptation, notice, came from his wife, Sarah, because she initiated this whole thing, suggesting that Abraham take her handmaiden, Hagar, have intercourse with her, and therefore have an heir. A child would be born to them. So Abraham had already been tried, but this whole thing was initiated by Sarah. And, and you know, you got to wonder what was going on in Abraham's mind and what Abraham was thinking. Because, I mean, you know, this is not the first time that Abraham had come to a crossroad and had to make a choice and a decision. And up until recently in our series, uh, he was doing pretty good. Yeah, he had his faults. Yeah, he made many poor choices and decisions and paid the consequences of all of them. But I mean, basically, he was doing quite well, right? I mean, he overcame many obstacles. Like, for example, the ties of nature and human love. When we're first introduced to Abraham, a couple of chapters back, when God first called him and commissioned him and was going to use him and work in him, uh, he first of all commanded him to leave his father's house there in Ur of the Chaldeans. The reason for that was the members of his family, and all of the people of Ur, right, were idol worshipers. And so God had to instruct Abraham to get out from that place so that God could instruct him and use him. He had to get out of that place of idol worship. And so without any hesitation, he got up and left. He left his father's house. He left his family. He left his friends. He left his country. And he left his comforts. So as it relates to ties of nature, he passed the test. And then also, later on, he went through another test of the stress of circumstances. Remember, finally, as God had directed him to go into the land that he was going to show him, that is the land of Canaan, that was the land that God had promised him that he was going to eventually, well, not him, but actually his seed, was going to possess, that is Uh, Israel. When finally he arrives at that destination, what does he find? Someone, anyone? There's a famine in the land, right? There's a famine in the land. So he went through that stress of circumstance, and he passed that test as well. But then also there was the trial between his brethren. Remember, God had blessed him and his nephew Lot and gave him many manservants and maidservants and flocks and herds and cattle and sheep and goats and and so on and so forth. And quite naturally, there was this friction that developed between his herdsmen, that is Abraham's herdsmen, and then Lot's herdsmen. Well, anyway, he he took the lower seat, right? And he told Lot to, you know, separate himself uh, from him and choose whatever area of the land that he wanted. And uh, unfortunately, Lot didn't choose wisely because, remember, he pitched his tent towards uh, Sodom. But in that test, Abraham passed with flying colors. But then there were other tests leading up to our study this morning, and that is the test of courage. Remember back in chapter 14, when this confederation of kings from the south came and uh, looted the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And not only did they take all of the loot of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of the riches of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they took many of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah captive, of which included Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so armed with over 300 of his servants, sort of like Abraham's special forces, Green Berets, or you know, a SEAL team. He goes out against this confederation of five kings and God gives him this great victory, right? He went out not in his own strength but in the strength of the Lord. So he passed the test of courage. Now, flush with victory, uh, back from the battle victorious, he's met by the king of Sodom who suggests to him, listen, you, after retrieving all of the loot, all of the booty, All of the people who had been taken captive, you know, the king of Sodom uh, says to Abraham, look, Abraham, just give us the people back and then you keep all of the booty. You keep all of the loot for yourself. But you see, Abraham, being the man that he was, a man of integrity, wouldn't touch the loot because he knew that it wasn't him who had actually won the battle, but that it was rather God who went before him. And so he didn't want to have anything to do with that money. So therefore, he also passed the test of the lure of riches, right? So up until this point, think about it. As we've been studying this man's life, up until chapter 16, he met all of these fairly well. He wasn't perfect, right? Particularly during the time of famine where he went down to Egypt, contrary to what God had told him to do. But basically, up until this point, he's doing pretty well, but here, notice, let's go back now to chapter 15. He follows the lead of his wife. Listen, you know, guys, let me tell you something. More times than not, your wife is absolutely right. And listen to your wife. Your wives have a lot of wisdom. God gives wisdom to our wives. You can be sure of that. But anyway, here he follows the lead of his wife, and he stumbles badly. It happened because Sarah was herself bothered by the lack of children. She felt disgraced. So instead of patiently waiting upon God to fulfill his promise, his own way, she approached Abraham with the suggestion of taking her servant, who was Hagar, and see if he could have a child by her. Now again, what in the world was Abraham thinking? But, you know, but think about this. You've you got to understand this culturally. This sort of thing was permitted back then culturally according to their law and custom. It wasn't God's law, but it was just that particular society and culture. So maybe that kind of played on Abraham's decision you know, maybe he weighed in on that, and maybe that added to Abraham making this poor choice. Or maybe Abraham was thinking, you know, maybe this is the way that God intended for us to have an heir. I mean, after all, it's been all of these years. He told me that Sarah was going to conceive, and uh, but there was no sign of it. So maybe he just thought, well, maybe this is the way that you know God chose to you know, to do what he had promised to do. Isn't it interesting when, you know, we have this hope of the scriptures, let's say, for example, we've read something and we believe it to be uh, of God, and, uh, and when it doesn't happen immediately, right, uh, we interject our own understanding into the whole thing, and we, we put all of these extracurricular kinds of things on the promises of God, and, and we're real good at doing that. We shouldn't do that. Just simply wait on the... Lord. Maybe he was thinking, you know, maybe my wife is right. Maybe I should listen to my wife. Well, anyway, he did. And eventually, Hagar conceived a child by this action. But folks, we know how this whole thing played out because we've read the last verse of this chapter. He was absolutely wrong. This was no way of solving his difficulty. You see, Abraham, as well as Sarah, was now operating in the flesh. And you don't ever want to operate in the flesh. When you choose to operate in the flesh and do things on your own, right, you can be sure that it's going to create all kinds of problems for you. That is, when you stop trusting God, when you stop looking to God for your answers and the solutions to your problem, listen, as I mentioned before, you are heading For disaster. It'll only complicate your life. It'll only add to the problem that already exists. Now, with that said, let's go back to verse 2. I want you to take note of the fact that Sarah begins to blame God for all of this. And isn't this so human like? You know, things aren't working out the way that we hoped they would work out. You know, rather than just waiting on the Lord and, and being thankful, we start to blame God for our problems. You know, where are you, God? You know, you did it for this person over here. Why aren't you doing it for me? And we start to blame God for our problems, right? Notice in verse 2, she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Not true. As we read on, we're going to discover that later on, she, in fact, gives birth to the child of promise and we uh, will be introduced to that child in one of our future studies. But she's being belligerent. That's what's going on here. I know we should trust God, she would say, but he's making it too difficult for me. Have you ever felt that way? You know, you read a promise in the word and, and uh, you know, maybe something, and it, and it is difficult. Some of the promises that God has recorded for us in the Bible, you know, to just stand on those promises and wait on the fulfillment of those promises are hard and it's difficult. And you may feel at times that it's too difficult to wait on the Lord. But nevertheless, that's exactly what we should, what we should do. He's forcing me to do this, right? That's what they were thinking, bad attitude. Later on, when Hagar conceived and then began to despise her mistress, Sarah began to complain, right? It was all her doing. Notice, go back to verses five and six. It says, then Sarah said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. Now she's blaming her husband. She was the one who initiated this whole thing. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. And so Abraham said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, that is, Hagar, she fled from her presence. And so she blames Abraham when things go south, when things get sour, right? But you know, think about this. Our problems are never with God or with other people. So where do we trace our problems back to? It's sin. It's the sin in ourselves. It's the bad choices that we've made. Abraham is at fault here. Sarah here is at fault as well. The only innocent one in this whole situation is Hagar. She didn't have the right to refuse. As I mentioned before, she was a slave. If that was her mistress's choice, then so be it. And so when the tension became unbearable for Hagar, she runs out into the wilderness. But here's the wonderful thing and the focus of this message. God found this one who had been unjustly treated whose experience was undeserved. And in this encounter, I want you to notice several things. Now, God's caught up with Hagar, who's running from her mistress. She's out there in the wilderness. She doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. She's facing an unsure future, right? But I want you to notice, go back to verse 7. I want you to consider with me the phrase, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord met her. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? Was it Gabriel? We don't know. Was it Michael, the archangel? We don't know. Was it some other angelic being? Well, we do not know. But let me suggest to you, first of all, this word angel in the Hebrew can literally be translated messenger. So it, it doesn't necessarily then refer to some kind of an angelic being. So this could actually be a messenger above all other messengers. In fact, it could be our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It could be an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. That is a theophanies, an appearance of Christ. And notice, she called him in verse 13, God who sees me. God who sees me. So again, I'm leaning more towards that, in fact, this is a theophanies because She refers to this one who's recommended to us as the angel of the Lord, and then she adds, it is God who sees me. So I guess she knew who it was, right? Okay? And then also, note here, and then she adds, I have now seen the one who sees me. So, just as God sought out Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that brought all of that trouble upon themselves, God entered into the garden and sought them out, even as here he sought Hagar out. Now, this is important, and this is very significant. You say, how's that? Well, remember, Hagar was not seeking him. She was not seeking God. She was on the run. So what do we learn from all of this? You know, go back to my opening statement. God isn't concerned about the natural person, the ordinary person, right? He's only concerned about kings and and people of notoriety and stuff. But such is not the case. God is interested in you. God is interested in me. You know, one of my favorite writers, a fellow who you often hear me Uh, quote him, but Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary on the book of Genesis as it relates to this particular incident said, and I quote, we see here that God never fails to see what is going on and that he is vitally interested in everything that touches one of his creatures. We may attempt to run away from the things that happen to us, but two things we can never get away from, and that is we cannot elude ourselves and we cannot get beyond God. Remember in the 139th Psalm, in the 139th Psalm in verses 7 through 10, the 139th Psalm in verses 7 through 10, and you're familiar with this text because we've put this particular Psalm to Psalm. And the psalmist declares, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Right? If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light upon me. So the idea here is that you can't flee from the presence of God. You can't hide from God. So anyway, in this encounter, all of a sudden... Trouble is turned into blessing. Let's go back to our text now. Notice in verse 10. What are we told in this conversation that I believe was Jesus speaking to Hagar? In verse 10, we are told, And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. But notice the stipulation in all of this which is recorded for us in verse 9. Jesus says to the woman, instructs her, commands her, return to your mistress's house and submit to her. Now, folks, let me tell you something. This is very good counsel. And this would apply to whatever you may be going through, some kind of an experience, some poor choice that you've made, because there's an underlying principle that I want you to consider in this counsel that was given to this woman by Jesus himself. And But let me also add, it's extremely hard. This is hard stuff. It's hard stuff to go back. I mean, when we're running away from something for whatever reason, uh, fear, embarrassment, concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow, whatever reason why we're running from something, it's always hard to go back. But if we have made the wrong turn in life, as we so often do, the only thing to do is to return to the point where it went wrong and start all over again and make that commitment to make things right. And folks, let me tell you something. Anything else only takes you farther and farther away. I mean, think about it, and you've heard this said many times before, not only by Christians, no problem is ever solved by running away. My mother and father used to tell me that all the time growing up. Now, in verse 15, so Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but the name Ishmael actually means God hears, so think about this then. He hears the cries of the afflicted, and that's the reason why she was instructed to name her son Ishmael. So the God who saw her, not only saw her, but also heard her. So God sees you, God hears you. Are you aware of these facts? God sees you right now in whatever state you happen to be in, no matter what you're dealing with. And he hears your cries. I'd encourage you, in fact, in your distress, cry out to God. He knows where you are. He knows where you've come from. He knows where you're going. He knows what you need. He knows what you don't need. And he wants to do great things in your life. But, even as Hagar was instructed to go back to her mistress's house, right, where this whole thing, this whole altercation began, we must also go back to the path of God. And we know from what is recorded here, Hagar did exactly that. And folks, it changed her life forever. And if you will make that same choice, your life will be changed forever as well.
1: My father's house, there's a place for me in my father's house where I long to be.
0: Oh, my when you look back at your life, what moments stand out to you? There are probably some pretty great ones—getting married, having kids, graduations, and celebrations. But I imagine there are also a few you'd rather not remember—the ones that come back to run through your head at night as you try to fall asleep. When we take a look at the stories of some of the Genesis characters, we see it all—the good, the bad, and the ugly. These people you meet made their fair share of mistakes— But that didn't disqualify them from being used by God. God built a nation from human beings who were far from perfect. And guess what? He wants to use you, too. God has a plan for your life, and you can faithfully follow Him in the way He has made for you. You can be forgiven of your sins and start fresh, remembering the faithfulness of God since the beginning of time. We're so glad we got to spend time with you today in the Word with Pastor Mike Venizio and in my Father's house. This program is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. Check us out online at harvestnyc.org. There you'll find service times and our easy to find location. We have easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. Come by and see us. If you aren't close enough to drop by, you can find links to our online streaming and more on our website, harvestnyc.org. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're out of time for now, but come back and feast on the word with us next time in my father's house. Oh my
1: heart, not be troubled.